Hey there, this is Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante, a podcast that usually slow walks through Dante's masterwork comedy all the way into Purgatorio at this point. But this is an interpolated episode of our podcast. This is going to start a long conversation we're going to have about what Purgatory is. I think most people are probably pretty familiar with hell and pretty familiar with paradise, although maybe not in the way that Dante imagines them. I would say most people know about hell in the Christian tradition as a lake of fire, not as the mini-terraced, mini-pocketed, mini-ringed structure that is Inferno with the many, many different torments besides just fire. This is the first episode in which we're going to kind of look at why purgatory occurs, how it came about theologically, how it came about biblically, and what Dante is doing with it in his work. Let's start out our entire discussion of purgatory by saying this is new territory. In case you don't know it, purgatory doesn't become official church doctrine until the late 1100s, and Dante is born in the mid-1200s and writes comedy somewhere around 1300, maybe a little later, and on up to 1321. This doctrine of purgatory is relatively new in Dante's lifetime. This would be as if, I don't know, think of something that happened 50 years before your own birth, and then you you based an entire poem on that. That's kind of like purgatory. It has been developing in church doctrine for sure over the centuries. But when Dante arrives here in his poem, he is, (laughs) to use the U.S. word, he is in virgin land with very little surrounding it. And you may know it's highly controversial. Augustine begins begins a kind of conversation about purgatory. It starts developing early on in Christian tradition, but nobody really schematizes it until the late 1100s. Even then, it has many theologians baffled. Some pull away from the notion of it. And then you may know when the Protestant Reformation happens long after Dante, this is one of the big bones of contention. Luther and others completely reject the notion of purgatory. They say, the church just made this up out of whole cloth. It's even controversial in Dante's day. And I'm going to tell you right here at the beginning of our discussions of purgatory, Dante is one of the prime imaginers of what this place is. Dante rather sets the theme of this. He doesn't necessarily set the theme for hell or heaven, But Dante is part, literally part, of the development of the theology of purgatory. In purgatory, everyone is in transit. Now, this is super important to understand. When you're in Inferno, no one is in transit other than the pilgrim Dante And apparently, some people can move within hell. That Virgil gets out of hell is mind-boggling. 
But mostly, except for Virgil, people can apparently walk around hell a little bit. For example, as the Pilgrim and Virgil make their way down through Inferno, they pass various people who say, oh, you must be headed lower. You must be headed on down. So there must be a stream of people coming down through Inferno. But once you get to the spot where you are, you're now there. You're with the barriters. You're with the thieves. You're stuck there. And nobody now is in transit. And there is no way, except for Virgil, apparently, that you could necessarily get up and walk around in hell. It's the same in Paradiso, in paradise, in heaven. We will discover that there's some transiting inside of heaven. But again, everybody is pretty stationary. And we're going to find out that even the transitory movements, the migration movements in paradise are illusory or they're perceptual, not actual. That is a tough bit. We'll get there when we get up to Paradiso. But in Purgatorio, everyone is in transit. Just think about this. In Inferno, Only Dante the Pilgrim is really in transit (laughs) for Virgil. I keep having to bite my tongue, except for Virgil. In Paradiso, no one is in transit except for the Pilgrim. Again, the only in-transit person. In Purgatorio, everyone's in transit (laughs) except for Virgil. Virgil is the one person who's not truly in transit, as we will discover, but we have to get there, but we will discover it. But everyone else is making their way up this mountain toward the place where they will settle in paradise. We've reached this spot of ultimate movement. Everybody is trying to move, including our pilgrim. So where is in hell? And whereas in paradise, everyone is stationary, essentially, and our pilgrim is the one who sticks out like a sore thumb, here, our pilgrim doesn't necessarily stick out like a sore thumb. He's going to stick out like a sore thumb for other reasons. But he doesn't necessarily stick out like a sore thumb because everybody is in motion. What that means for us is that purgatory is a liminal space, and it is in Christian theology. Let me explain this. A liminal space is a space between worlds. A liminal space is actually the portal itself. So, for example, when the shaman does his dance or her dance in front of the fire, they enter this spot, this liminal spot, that is both in this world and in the next world. They didn't leave this world. They didn't disappear They're still here dancing around the fire, but they're now in this portal spot. When the oracle at Delphi speaks, the oracle of Delphi is both still there in the temple, but also somehow able to see beyond into the world of the gods. That's that liminal spot. And the liminal spot is traditionally a spot of revelation. Let me back up and explain this for just a second. When you can get in liminal spots in your own life. Well, you can get in doorways in your own life, but liminal spots are the moments when you're most vulnerable and also probably most creative. For example, if you're going to write or paint or compose, if you're an artist in any way, You actually want to hit this liminal spot. You want to hit the spot in which you're composing, you're playing a Bach prelude, you're performing a monologue from Shakespeare, you're doing your creative craft, and you want to hit that liminal spot in which 
you're still in your body. You're still playing the keyboard piece. You're still acting out Shakespeare. But you've also kind of got a foot in the other world. You're Hamlet. You're the music as it's passing through you. Anybody who's been involved in creative arts knows this feeling, finding themselves in that liminal creative space between worlds. It's not that you evaporated. Let's say you're painting a painting. It's not that you evaporated. You can still hold the brush. You still feel the tension of the brush in your hands. You still feel yourself dabbing. You're making conscious choices of dabbing up colors. And yet at the same time, you've entered this kind of wild space in which the painting is flowing around you. And you know that in a liminal space, Time is irrelevant. It becomes a different category altogether. When you're performing a piece on the piano or the organ or the flute or the oboe or whatever instrument you may play, there does come this moment in which time will just evaporate because your skill and the challenge to your skill are so formally and perfectly matched that it just seems like time goes away. I do this sometimes when I'm writing. I can feel myself kind of lift and get into a writing space, and then it just happens, and time seems to evaporate. I mean, purgatory is that. It itself is a liminal spot. Dante the Pilgrim has always been liminal. He's been liminal from the minute he picks up Virgil, probably in the minute he's in the dark wood. He's been this weird character who's still alive but in the afterlife, and he's both at once. He's both there, and he's still breathing and living. He's still embodied. He still feels pain. He still can feel pain. Well, the damn can feel pain too, but in a, apparently in a different way. But he could still be hurt in some way. He is the fully liminal character in Inferno. Once we hit purgatory, everybody's liminal. Everybody's in that spot. They all resonate with Dante. And it shouldn't surprise us that purgatory then will be full of artists. <laughs> and it will be full of artistic endeavors. None of that should surprise us because Everybody is matching the pilgrim in some way. When he gets up to paradise, again, he'll be the liminal person. He'll be the person who is both there and not there, who is embodied and yet traveling through the spheres. But here in Purgatory, everything is liminal including purgatory itself. And that's the way it is in Christian theology, right? Because you are purgating, purging your sins, purgating them. So you aren't being punished as in hell, but you're not yet being rewarded as in heaven. Let's talk about that for just a minute. The nature of the fire, let's pretend it's fire. It's going to be more than that in purgatory for Dante. But the nature of the fire has changed. In the fires of hell, the fire is punitive. It's a punishment. You undergo it because you did something wrong. Here, the fire is purifying. It's remedial. It's to teach you what you didn't exactly learn in this life. So the fire itself or the punishments themselves are different. These are not punishments for the sake of punishments. These are punishments so that you can enter paradise ultimately, which means that the whole nature of the pain has changed. It's not pain to make you feel bad. It's pain to purify you. We're going to 
come back to this a thousand times, but this is so crucial to the theology of purgatory that the the meaning of pain has altered. It's going to cause Dante problems, and he's going to also work through some, but not all of the problems, because you're basically talking a shift in terms. And finally, I just want to bring this up and mention this because I brought it up once before. I do think that hell is purgatorial for the poet and that purgatory (laughs) is purgatorial for the pilgrim. The hell experience, the inferno experience, helps the poet hone the craft of the vernacular and see its limits, see what he can do with poetry, see where poetry can take him until finally at the end of Inferno, we end up at that point where poetry itself even fails, looking at Dis, at Satan, at Lucifer. When we get that bit about for tongues that just speak mama and papa, we just get that kind of collapse into silence. We're going to do the same thing in Purgatorio. We're going to reach a place where silence reigns right at the end. And then we're going to do a similar thing in Paradiso right at the end. We're going to hit a moment when silence reigns. But the poet's silence that leads up to that moment in front of Lucifer is different from the pilgrim's silence at the top of purgatory. We'll have to wait for that. Inferno is pushing the poet to the limits of the poet's ability as he explores the vernacular. Purgatory is pushing the pilgrim to the limits of his abilities, to what he can encompass, to what he can take in until he too will fall to a place of silence at the end. Those are some basic points about purgatory, some about the history of it, some about the theology of it, and some about its place inside of Dante's comedy. We're going to come back to this many times over the first few cantos. I want to come back next time we do this interpolated stuff with biblical passages that indicate purgatory. They are very controversial. Protestants dismiss these passages. Roman Catholics take these passages as for certain. Look for more of these episodes ahead as we try to figure out how this doctrine became codified by the end of the 1100s, a mere 50 or 60 years before Dante was born. I hope you'll subscribe and rate to this podcast. I hope you come back because we're going to go on to Canto 2 of Purgatorio in the next episode. we got to keep walking even when we interpolate historical and theological material. I'm Mark Scarborough, and I will see you in Canto 2 of Purgatorio next on Walking with Dante.